Before I, I, I start my message, uh, might be good to just stop and reflect on some of the things we've just sung. And, and some of the phrases you've heard that may be new phrases for you. References to things like the Holy Spirit. Things you might hear. References to things like the gospel. The altar. This idea of Jesus navigating life with us. Or the promises that we've sung that may have slipped right past some of you or uh, caused more thinking. This idea that out of ashes a new life is formed. And early on, uh, when Michael was introducing things to us, before we read that text from Romans, he referenced, there's the good God who is in some way in control, yet awful things still happen. He said there are still wars, there's still death, there's still oppression, there's still injustice, and that is baffling. There's another phrase that we throw around, assuming everybody understands what it means, even followers of Christ. Even we need a reference that reminds us of what this means. The phrase or the, 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 uh, the word the gospel, not just gospel, but the gospel, which really many of you know it means good news. But here's the good news. Just a reminder, this is what Jesus, this is the thing into which Jesus invites us. And many here today have said, I got invited and I accepted the invitation. And others are moving toward Christ, but haven't formally said, yep, I'm in yet, but I'm sure interested. <laughs> Probably others that wouldn't even consider themselves that interested. But it's good to remember what the gospel the message of Jesus is, the invitation. It's certainly about finding new, what's called new life in Christ, that, that he becomes our source of life, where the invitation is to be reconciled to our creator, to God the Father. The idea in scripture is that God loved us so much that he took on human form and emptied himself and came and said, I'm going to live among you, and I'm going to live a perfect life, the life that you were always intended to live, that does no injustice against anybody, that loves perfectly. It was always his plan. There's so much going on today that God never intended for us, never intended war, never intended anything awful, certainly never intended death, or a moment lived apart from the fullness of his joy and the warmth of his embrace. But our choices made the world different. The gospel says, any step you've taken away from that kind of love, any unhealthy independence where you've said, never mind God, I'm doing this, I'm doing my gig, my deal, I in fact want to be my own God in some ways, that can be forgiven. And there can be reconciliation. Just like any, bro any broken relationship, if you work hard, you can have reconciliation. And it's something to be celebrated. It makes everybody happy. That's the source of life in Jesus. When we say, Jesus, even long before I understand much at all about you and your love, I want to be your child. And the ashes I'm forced to endure or choose to make for myself, I at least want to know you're walking through them with me, helping me, keeping my head above water. Please forgive my sins. Be my leader. I want to be your child.
And then Christianity, though, has the gospel includes something as exciting as that. We can be reconciled to God when we humbly come to Jesus. But I love this too. Jesus goes beyond that and says, look, you can hide your imperfect life in my life. And when God looks at you, he sees the life I lived. When you hide yourself in me, when you live for me. But all those injustices and that terrible stuff that's so frustrating to you and frustrating to me, I'm asking, actually inviting you to work with me to change that to stand against evil, to stand against racism, to stand against injustice, to stand against the, 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 the debilitating power of poverty and emotional poverty, financial poverty. I'm asking you to come and join me to stand against every form of death that we have to experience and make what's ought to be to be. One day it's gonna be that way. But until then, the great privilege of the gospel Part of the gospel is that we take the values of God and we live them out and we stand arm in arm as a church, loving people unconditionally, opening doors for folks, giving them a leg up, introducing them to the perfect love of Christ and at least giving them an opportunity to hear about it and do something about it. Don't you love that? That God would say, not only are we reconciled, but I'm giving you the privilege of joining me in fixing what's broken. Because to the degree we can be, what we one day will be, today we should be. That's the gospel. Certainly invite you into it and we'll move toward Christ together. You weren't thinking you were going to get two sermons today, did you? Were you? <laughs> well, we're in this preaching series that uh, is called Extraordinary, where we're focusing on opportunities to learn from folks that seem to be ordinary people that God uses to do extraordinary things. And actually, that's his preference. He loves that, to take an ordinary person and do something extraordinary with him or her. He uses ordinary people, in fact, to do mind-blowing, world-changing things. He always has, he is now, and he always will be doing that. And I can't think of a better example of that, and I offer him today as sort of exhibit A, the Apostle Peter. Peter, who could argue against the notion that Peter accomplished extraordinary things, that he was an extraordinary man, certainly in the agenda of God. Peter's the dude. Our Catholic brothers and sisters recognize Peter as their first pope. And that is taken from the text in Matthew 16, where Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock. That's your new name, and I'm going to build the church upon the rock. And yes, I know there are different ways to interpret that. Does the rock mean you're the boulder, the foundation upon which I'm going to build my church? Our Catholic brothers and sisters might lean toward that interpretation. Does the rock mean the chip off of the beautiful cliff, does it mean, some would argue that really a, that word would have been used to reference maybe the kind of stone that David would put in his sling that he throws out, uh, slings out and kills the giant uh, Goliath. What was Jesus saying? I don't know any of those, maybe all of them. But the point is, he says something pretty profound to Peter that must have made Peter's heart swell. He really affirms him in some way. That rock passage 
You're important to this whole enterprise, he says to Peter. Peter is generally accepted among scholars as the founder of the church in Rome, whether you agree that he was pope or not, and the founder uh, of the church in Antioch. Jesus did all kinds of things because Peter was a profound person. He did amazing things. God really used him. He was there, for instance, among the few that were there at the transfiguration. Look in Mark chapter 9 or Luke chapter 9 to read about that miraculous event. Not everybody was there. Peter was there. Peter saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. Peter was there in the small group that Jesus invited to come with him to the garden when he agonized in the garden before his crucifixion, before his arrest. Said to Peter and a handful of others, you guys, my chosen special friends, stay over here and pray for me. I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to pray, but will you just pray for me because this is a tough night for me. This is a tough moment for me and I need you. If I ever needed you, I need you now. Now the They drifted in and out of sleep. But Peter was one of the ones that Jesus chose to go with him on that night. When he prayed that agonizing prayer, Father, is there some other way we can reconcile humankind to you besides me facing what I'm about to face? And I don't think Jesus was very nervous at all about the physical pain that was before him. I think he was quite focused on the idea that there was going to be a moment where all of the sins of humankind, past, present, and future, were laid upon Christ. And he was taking care of all of those sins. The scripture says, I think hyperbolically, but the scripture says it with some level of literal meaning too, that Jesus, it's, it's like he became sin on our behalf. And then there was this moment, if you remember the story, where Jesus cried out something from the cross because he felt something there. God, Father, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in his life, he felt distance. He felt a, 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 a vacuum, the vacancy of the presence of God. And he's knowing that's going to happen. It has to happen, and he's agonizing about it. And Peter was one of the people that he asked to come and hang with him on that most difficult night of prayer. Peter was the first to confess Jesus as Messiah. Remember that moment? Who are, who are people saying I am? And I don't know what all the other dudes were thinking. They had to have talked about this. Who is this guy by now? Who is this? He teaches like no one teaches. He's amazing. What do I feel in my heart when he's teaching? What's going on with me? But Peter speaks right up because Peter had no filter. And sometimes that served him well. Sometimes that didn't serve him so well. Served him well here because he says, look, I'm going to say what everybody else is wondering about. Here's what we're convinced of. You're the Messiah. You're the one. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the one we've been praying for. You're the one in whom we've been hoping. You're the Messiah, the Redeemer. Peter was the one to announce that. On the day of Pentecost, after Christ's death and resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, which was the day that uh, followers of Christ were gathered in an upper room to pray, waiting for this person of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God, to come and rest, come upon them and then rest within them. It was going to be sort of a great launching day for the church. All the options God had to preach the Pentecost sermon on that day, guess who he chose? Peter. He accomplished extraordinary things for God. Peter's mother-in-law was healed by Jesus himself. It's Peter who walks on water when Jesus invites him out of the boat. That didn't end so well, but he had it going on for a little bit. (laughs) 
Peter was the first person actually to enter an empty tomb after resurrection. He wasn't the first one there, but he was the first one to poke his head in and enter the tomb. When Judas betrayed Jesus and the apostles decided we need to fill that office, there needs to be uh, 12 of us, and so we need to pick another apostle. Peter is presented as somebody instrumental in leading that discussion and maybe even making that choice. So early on, Peter is recognized as a great leader. In Acts chapter 10, we'll come back to this in a minute, but Peter has a vision that says to him, hey, include everybody, not just the Jewish people. Include the Gentiles in this message, in this gospel message. Peter was so recognized, so widely recognized, so influential, that it was believed that if you walked in his shadow, if he could, you would just get him to cast his shadow upon you, you could be healed. And Peter was eventually crucified, but history tells us he was crucified by Nero upside down, probably around 65, 66, 67 AD. If you read the Gospel of Mark, Scholars generally accept the fact that that's actually the gospel of Peter, written by Mark, so it's not misleading you, but likely dictated by Peter and written down by Mark. Peter was at least an intellectual and historical source for that gospel. That's how influential he was. He was called by the Apostle Paul a pillar of the church. There could be little question about the extraordinary nature and effect of Peter's life and ministry. Can we agree on that? Because God uses ordinary people to do mind-blowing things, world-changing things, and Peter did some mind-blowing things, some world-changing things. He was an extraordinary servant of Christ. But Peter was also a bit ordinary, and maybe that's putting it kindly. Because he was... Well, he tripped over his own tongue a lot. He made a lot of mistakes. As someone who feels Peter's angst about not having a filter, I know what he was dealing with. He was so common. He was the brother of the apostle Andrew, but if you read scripture carefully, you recognize Peter, the rock, wasn't even the first one to find Jesus. Andrew found Jesus, went and got Peter and said, hey, we found the Messiah, come and meet him. It was Andrew who did that. Peter was second in line behind his brother. He was common. He had business partners. He was business partners in a fishing business with James and John. And fishermen at that time were pretty gruff individuals, even unkept, some say vile, shabbily dressed, prone to vulgar language, unlike the fishermen of today. The fishermen of the first century were, were the, what we stereotypically would call men's men. I'm not implying that that's a healthy thing, that stereotype, but, but if you could think of that, that's the fisherman, that's Peter. Full of vigor, boisterous tempers. Maybe that's why James and John were referred to as the sons of thunder because they were so big, just bigger than life. It was a rough life, because fishing was a very physically 
demanding job. And these had to be fairly either crazy or brave people. They went out, sometimes in pretty stiff storms, in 25 or 30 foot open boats to do their fishing and hoisting those full nets over those boats. If the wrong thing happened at the wrong time and a storm came through and they would come upon them suddenly, that thing would capsize and lives would be lost. He was common. He was average. He was normal. And if he wasn't normal, it was because he was so loud and strange and forceful. We know from Acts chapter 3 that Peter was not a man of significant financial means. He was a working guy. He was the one who, when Jesus said, I want to wash your feet, everybody sit down. I want to do this act of humble service for all of my followers. They all sat down and took off their sandals, except Peter. Peter refused to let Jesus even wash his feet. He spoke pretty candidly to the point where in Matthew 16, you have a record of Peter actually rebuking Jesus for something Jesus was teaching. Who does that? We do it more secretly. We just rebuke Jesus for what he's teaching by not doing what he taught us to do. Peter actually said it right to his face. It was kind of like this. Hey, listen here now. Don't you ever say that to me again. It it had that kind of force. Take that back. That's never going to be true of you. Can you imagine that? Peter doing that. This dude was common, if not strange. When Jesus is arrested in the garden, one of the apostles cut off the ear of one of the servants of one of the centurions that came to arrest Jesus. Guess who? The record of Peter taking out his little mini sword or taking it from someone else and taking a swing and cutting off the ear of the servant. Now, when you're going to take somebody on, call them out and fight them after school, first of all, you make sure you don't pick the biggest, toughest guy. Peter was that smart. He didn't take on somebody else with a sword. He took on a servant. And he went to take a swing, probably down the middle of his head, but he wasn't very good, or the guy ducked and cut off his ear. And that's where Jesus says, put away the sword. By the way, he offers a message to Peter that night that America would do well to listen to and Christians would do well to remember. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Blessed are the peacemakers. But that's for another message. I don't want to give you three in one day. And then Jesus, you've got to love this, Jesus looks at that servant who was assisting in the arrest Probably didn't really want to, but there he was, had to. And what does he do? It's the last recorded miracle of Christ in Scripture. He touches his ear and heals it, even probably while he's rebuking Peter. But Peter, just so common, just so real. He's the only apostle to publicly deny that he knew Jesus, and that's what's represented here in this picture. You see, Peter... At one corner, in the lower corner, they're looking away in shame. And the other side is Jesus looking at him after hearing Peter's denial. And he's well aware of his ordinary self. There's this miracle that Jesus does post-resurrection where he says, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, guys. He sees them fishing and they're not catching anything and he hollers out, hey, hey, throw your nets on the other side. And they do, and the nets are filled to ripping. And in that context, Peter sees what's going on, and he's saying, 
get away from me, man. I'm not worthy of you. I am just common. He certainly proved his vulnerability, and Jesus used the best parts of that flawed personality of Peter to make an extraordinary difference in the world. Why? Because God loved to use ordinary people to do mind-blowing, world-changing things. I can't think of a better example than the Apostle Peter. Profound and profoundly common, if not less than common. So here's the question and the heart of the matter for today. If we're going to function as ordinary people with the hope of God doing something in our lives that's extraordinary, moving from ordinary to extraordinary, or at least being used in extraordinary ways, what are the, some of the takeaways for us from the example of this peasant who became one recognized as Pope? Here's the first one from Acts chapter 10. Take this away. Moving from ordinary to extraordinary means being what I call patiently faithful. In other words, it can take time, years, even decades. Listen to this story I'll read to you from Acts chapter 10. This is what I referenced earlier about Peter being on the rooftop, and all of a sudden he gets a vision, and in effect, this is the message he's finally figuring out. Hey, this gospel is not just for my chosen people. I'm going to adopt and graft in some other people. It's for everybody in the world, including non-Jews, including Gentiles. It's a pretty reasonable principle that we hope we recognize very soon. The gospel's for everybody. God doesn't play favorites. Listen to this story, the whole thing. Now about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being preserved, he fell into a trance. I'm going to tell you, I've had some meals like that, where it was while it was being prepared, I fell into a trance. I couldn't wait. My mouth is watering. I don't think that was Peter's experience. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. In other words, it contained in this vision animals no Jew was allowed to eat because there are very strict dietary laws. Peter was faithful to those. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he replied in this vision, surely not, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I'm following your guidelines. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. That's interesting. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius, earlier Cornelius, a, fellow, a Gentile, a centurion named Cornelius, had had a vision saying, there's this guy coming to bring you a great message, go get him and bring him to your house. While he was wondering about the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon or Peter's house was, and they stopped at the gate, and they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with him, for I have sent them. So this is God leading 
everybody together. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion, the Gentile. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is represented who is represent, uh, respected by all the Jewish people. Notice he loves the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say, which was the gospel message. And then Peter invited them into the house to be his guests. And the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So it's already going to be kind of tough for Peter, but Cornelius makes the crowd bigger, even more family. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, and he fell at his feet in reference. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm just common. I'm just a man myself. Recently, uh, our heads of departments here had a chance to go to Southern California for a couple of days to a conference where a, a well-known national pastor named Andy Stanley was speaking, and he had some brilliant insights. And one of the talks we heard from him was around this text. And this point that I'm making, actually, I learned from Andy Stanley. In fact, the talk was so good, we're talking about when we can present it to you in video without you just thinking we're being lazy and taking a week off. It's just that good. We want you exposed to this, this message. But we listened to it again uh, last week or the week before in our all-staff meeting. And he references this. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, and Andy Stanley in his presentation says, isn't this a great way to win friends and influence people? Here's how he starts. You are all well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate, associate or visit with you guys, with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And I'm asking the question, so that's what you used to call us? I'm asking him to leave again, please. Except, don't forget, both parties had visions. And I'm wondering if Cornelius is saying, this is what you told me to go find this guy, so this is the message he has for me? To dismiss me? Remind me that he thinks he's above me? But then Peter goes on. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And what we have here is Peter recognizing that this gospel, this death and resurrection, this love for humanity that's displayed by Jesus is not just for the Jewish people. It's for the world. And we shouldn't hold it so closely. We need to share it. He's recognizing God doesn't play favorites. And we're all about favorites. We thought we were his favorites. And now he's asking us to love all of humanity. And he's sending this message, this gospel this love is for everyone. Isn't that a great message? You'd think it's part of the Christian message. Everybody gets it. Here was Andy Stanley's point. Because if you're going to be a common or ordinary person who finds his or her way to being used to do extraordinary things by God, it's going to take time. And this message that Peter finally figures out comes 15 years after the resurrection. 15 years. And you think, well, that, but that's a basic part of the message. Everybody gets that part of the message. Fifteen years. It took Peter to get to that point 
of understanding and maturity. So here's my point. Man, it's going to take some time. Give yourself some time. Pursue Christ. Move toward Christ. Be hungry for Christ. Learn more about Christ. Get every bit of education you can get. Dig into the scriptures. Talk to people who have been there and been around the block and been older. Learn what it means to be a deep and thoughtful and passionate and compassionate person. But take some time. It takes time to develop something great. And God loves to take his time with you. If Peter took 15 years to figure out something that rudimentary, it might take you a few years before God's going to do all that he's going to do through you. So that's the first observation. Second observation comes from the Gospel of Luke, and I'm in, verse chapter, I'm in chapter 22. Begin reading at verse 59. But moving from ordinary to extraordinary can take some time. Moving from ordinary to extraordinary involves failure. And we need to seriously adjust our view of failure. Listen, listen to this. This gospel of Luke. Because Peter failed a bit. Wouldn't you agree? Seizing Jesus, he was led away and they took him into the house of the high priest and Peter followed at a distance. Now to be fair, he was at least at a little bit closer distance than some of the other apostles apparently. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together... Peter sat down with them, and a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him. She said, this, this, this man at our fire here was with him. Jesus is, Jesus is being arrested, and he's within sight, maybe even earshot. So it's all, all this clatter and business is going on over here, and the fire's going on over here, and she sees Peter and said, this, this one right here, he was with, he was with him. And Peter denies it. He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. That's just painful to read it, isn't it? A little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, you also were one of those followers of Jesus who claimed to be Messiah. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, so now he's stewing in it for an hour, Another one asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Remember that Peter had been boisterous and certain about Jesus and his commitment and loyalty to Jesus not that long ago. And he says, I'm, the others may desert you, Lord, but you can count on me, Peter. I am your, I'm your best friend, man. I'm your dude. They may run away, not me. And Jesus said in response, oh, Peter, lovingly. Can you hear the love in his voice? Before morning, before the cock crows, you're going to die, you knew me three times. And he remembered the cock crowing. And when the cock crowed, this text from Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Put yourself in Peter's place, and what do you feel 
when you're looking into those eyes. Those are the eyes that have always said, I love you, I've got space for you, I've got lessons for you, come on, let's cook together, let's eat together, let's walk together, I'm gonna do these great miracles, and of all the people I could choose, you're gonna be one of the few that I choose to come with you for my most tender moments. My deepest trust is going to be in you, and those are the same eyes that looked at him right after Jesus heard Peter deny him. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he did what we would have done. He went out and he wept bitterly. I would say that qualifies as a failure. But if you're an ordinary person who's going to be used by God to do extraordinary things, we have to get to the place where we can let failure be used to instruct us and teach us. We don't pursue failure. We don't hope for failure. We don't long for failure. But we're going to have failure. We're going to have times when we miss the mark, do much less than we were capable of, or even choose to mess something up. And if we're going to be used to do extraordinary things when we're so terribly ordinary, we're going to have to look at failure differently and say, I don't want failure, but when I have it, and I will, here, God, redeem it. Take my failure that disappoints both of us and turn it into something that at least can be used by both of us. Build me from it. Use me. Remember, there's another part of this story where after the resurrection, there's no verbiage recorded between Jesus and Peter. until Peter is restored. Go and feed my sheep. Go and love my people. That's always God's posture with human failure. Ordinary people who do extraordinary things make sure it's their posture too. Failure happens, we don't celebrate it, we don't choose it. But we come and we say, I'm looking for restoration. That's always God's posture. People who get to the place of being used to do extraordinary things by God, no matter how widely recognized or applauded those extraordinary things are, make sure it's their posture as well. Shame wants to silence and minimize us, and that's what was happening in the life of Peter. He just didn't allow it because Jesus wouldn't allow it. Failure may change the way you see God, but remember this, failure never changes the way God sees you. He wants to use it to build something good in you. So it means taking time moving from ordinary to extraordinary. And moving from ordinary to extraordinary, being used as an ordinary person to do extraordinary things, involves failure. It's part of the deal. The question is, will it be redeemed or not? And then finally this observation. Moving from ordinary to extraordinary requires focus. When I was a new Christian, I was reading everything I could read, listening to every speaker I could listen to, attending every camp. I was so hungry I could never get enough. I was just sucking it down as fast as it could come, all the information. 
every night digging into that Bible, every morning waking up, reading, 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 listening, 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 probably listening to and reading some stuff that I really shouldn't have been listening to. And it was very undiscerning. But I, you know what I'm talking about. I was like a sponge. But one of the phrases that I heard early on that has stayed with me, it was cliche then. I don't know if it is now. It may have been forgotten by now. But you know, things are cliche in part because they're worth repeating. And here's what it was. One speaker said this and it stayed with me and it makes this last point, the point of focus. The need is not the call. The need is not the same thing as the call to respond to the need. People who are ordinary, who find themselves being used in extraordinary ways, Peter shows us that part of the reason they are used to do extraordinary things because they figured out very soon how to focus on things to which they were called and not focus or be distracted by other, listen, good things that somebody needs to say yes to. We all can recognize, right, the world has more needs than we're going to be able to respond to and, and, and take care of. But the need is not the call. If the need was the same as the call, if the justification for focusing there was the fact that they needed somebody to focus there, none of us would get anything of significance done. People who are used by God to do extraordinary things have figured out how to focus. They know that the need is not the same as the call. The need is simply the need, and God's going to call somebody else to do that. What's he calling me to focus on? And evangelical Christians are not very good at not... I mean, people with good hearts that really want to follow Jesus, that have compassion, and they care about the world, and they care about every expression of brokenness in the world. They love people so much, they can't stand the fact that somebody could have a broken heart or an empty uh, refrigerator, empty cupboards, or whatever it might be. We're pulled left and right, and we're not very good at, at uh, focusing because it means we're having to say no to something that really needs our attention that God cares about. But that's because we're saying yes to something we're called to. And if we're not going to focus, nothing of any depth or significance is going to happen. Peter does that. I mean, listen, Peter recognizes, I care about Gentiles. He just had this vision about Gentile inclusion. Yet he ends up being focused on the circumcised, on the Jews. And they recognize by strategic conversation, all these guys getting together, okay, look, here's how we're going to do this. Peter, to whom are you called? Jews. Paul, to whom are you called? Primarily Gentiles. Where are you going? Where are you? Let's all focus on, like the coach at the New England uh, Patriots, whom I, I hate to quote because I'm a Broncos fan, but... Somebody this week said, hey, you're doing much better with your sports references. You're not giving too many of them. So we've got to fix that. <laughs> he has this phrase, he says to every player, look, just do your job. If you're a lineman, block the other lineman. Don't try to take the ball and run with it. That needs to be done by somebody, but not you. And if you don't do that job, he can't do that job. That's how this thing works. Focus, focus, focus. To whom am I called? With whom will I go? The need is not the call. The need is the need. Galatians 2, 
As for those, this is Paul writing now, who are held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been, that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, that's Paul now, just as Peter to the circumcised. Well, he understands his focus. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace or the gift or the focus given to us, given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they should go to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, which would be a good thing for the church to remember again, by the way, but that's a fourth sermon. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. My only point here is this, that at some point along the way, they recognized the importance of focus. Paul is not saying, because I'm going to the Gentiles, I don't care about the circumcised. Neither is Peter saying, because I go to the circumcised primarily, I don't care about the Gentiles. In fact, if you look at Peter's epistles, they're written to non-Jewish people. He still has a concern and a a secondary ministry there, but his focus is there. And Anybody who's feeling ordinary, an ordinary person who's going to experience the extraordinary power and use of God, if you won't focus on something, you're not going to get a stinking thing done, not of any substance. To do that, we have to learn. I have a heart for these other needs. My not focusing there doesn't mean they're not valid needs. There are needs everywhere. But who am I going to block? To whom am I called? With whom will I go? And I would argue churches need to ask the same questions. If you want to see extraordinary results, it's one of the things Peter teaches us. There's a Latin phrase used when describing the way God created the universe. It's pronounced all sorts of different ways. Ex nihilo is the way I pronounce it, but that doesn't matter as much as recognizing what it means. It's the idea of making something out of nothing. You have no materials and you can create out of that. And the Bible describes the universe and all of its inhabitants as being the result of God creating out of nothing. But it seems to me as I reflect on this story of Peter that he didn't stop there. So when it comes to people who do extraordinary things, in some ways he's recreating something out of virtually nothing. He takes a person who is incapable of miracles, breathes life and power into them, and then sometimes the most unlikely choice of all does something profound through a rather unprofound person. He uses ordinary persons to do mind-blowing, world-changing things. But that's not likely to happen until we realize that's going to take time. We need to give ourselves some time. It usually, if not always, involves failure. Failure is not good but it can be turned into good when we offer our failures to God for him to redeem and teach us through them. And it requires focus. The the ability to admit that the need is not the call, not the same thing. 